is on page 952 in the Bibles uh, in your seats. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I would encourage you to have your copy of God's Word open to that text, and uh, it's page 952 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're finishing chapter 1 today uh, in our series on uh, 1 Corinthians, Messy Church. Uh, it's been fun studying uh, for this, uh, this particular message, but also the entire book, um, 1 Corinthians is one of those books, someone asked me, they said, you know, why, why did you choose 1 Corinthians? We talked a little bit about this before, but because building on our series in January, we talked about elevating church to its proper position, proper place, um, the church is messy at times. Um, it's, it's, we're a group of sinners. We talked about that in our membership class uh, today, uh, that we're, we're a group of sinners, and uh, we're going to have to be patient with each other. We're going to have to forgive each other, ask for forgiveness and things like that. And there's going to be times where we just have to adjust. And then this book of 1 Corinthians, what it does is it shows several examples of a church uh, needing adjustment. And it's really helpful to us here. There's some theological things, though, that Paul is getting at that's, that's really helpful. Before I begin, though, one of the things that I want to talk about is that, you know, you, you've probably heard this phrase. And... Um, that there's really two kinds of people in this world. And then people, they'll, they'll apply that in different ways. So I came across some, um, some, some graphics that kind of describe some of these things. So there's two kinds of people in this world, okay? You get the difference here? You know, one person has a one alarm and they're up, and the rest is, you know, every few minutes, you got to keep going. There's two kinds of people in this world, okay? 
all right? How you eat corn on the cob is important, right? I didn't know. I didn't know that there was another way until I got married. You know, Anouk is one way, I'm the other way. Um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people in this world. How do you end up with the gas, okay? Do you end with even dollar or do you end with, uh, you know, the, the, you know how, how do you do that? The, or the even dollar over here and the even gallon amount over there. It's always a dilemma, right? You're like, oh, well, if I, if I make it even on this one, then it's not there. Two kinds of people in this world. How do you bookmark? Please, please tell me you're not this, okay? You know, you're not, you're not dog in ear in books, are you? Are there any dog ears here? Anybody? Oh, man. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Come quickly. All right. So, yes, no, you got to use the bookmark, okay? You got to use the bookmark. Okay. Two kinds of people here, all right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you back there. All right, not going to ask you to show up. Okay. Um, and then there's people, like, they look up at the stars and they're like, oh, yeah, I see this. I'm not that person. I'm over here. I'm like, I, I don't see it. I don't see a bear. I, I'm sorry. I don't. Uh, but other people, they do, right? Uh, two more. Uh, two kinds of people in this world. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Which one are you there? And last but not least, most importantly, two kinds of people in this world. Okay. How do you have the toilet paper, right? Okay. In fact, my dad, I'll tell you this. My dad, he is big on this over here. And we were home for Christmas one time. And my older brother, every time he'd go in the bathroom, would switch it. And just switch it every time. And so finally, my dad came out and he's like, Jeremy, would you stop doing that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was my older brother who's quiet and reserved and everything. And I was like, this was our childhood right here. I always got blamed. Okay, so two kinds of people in this world. Okay, on a much more serious note, though. We've had some fun laughing at this, but on a much more serious note, Paul really is describing two kinds of people on a, in a spiritual level here in this text here. Spiritually speaking, there are only two types of people in this world, and he talks about it in verse 18. Verse 18 is really the thesis statement of Paul's point here. When he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who us are being saved is the power of God. So there's two kinds of people in this world, those who are perishing and those who are being saved, according to Paul's writings here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And what this does is this acts as a thesis statement, verse 18, and then in verse 19, he gives some scriptural support for it, and then in 20 and following through 31, he unpacks it a little bit. And so that's what I'm going to do over the next few minutes here. We're going to unpack what this means, that there's two types of people in this world. But I'm going to pause and ask God's blessing, and then we will begin. Father... You know, um, it's fun to think and, and laugh a little bit about some of these types of things here. Um, but then we, we see what Paul is doing here, and it, it becomes much more sobering. And uh, so I pray that as we go through this passage of Scripture, I pray that we would um, 
uh, we, would, we would see it for what it says, that your spirit would guide us, that I would be able to communicate in a way that is, that is helpful and free from distraction and be able to communicate in a way that is, is accurate to the text that is before us here and be led by your spirit. And I pray for everyone listening here that whether here in the room or online, that uh, the word of God, would your spirit would use the word of God to, to encourage our hearts and challenge us and to, uh, to draw us towards you, God. This is what we need, God. We need this from you. And so these are things that we're praying for. In Christ's name we do pray, amen. So I said there's two kinds of people. The first one is what Paul talks about is those who are perishing here. And so the difference between the two types of people are really the response to the gospel. That's really it. The gospel message of that Jesus, he came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, he died a death he did not deserve, and then he rose again from the dead. We sang about all these elements in our songs today. This is the gospel message. Gospel simply means good news. And this was a plan that God had so that we could have forgiveness of sins. Because remember, way back in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they, they, the first humans that were created, um, sinned against God. They had one rule to follow, a main rule to follow, a prohibition. They said, do, God said, do not do this. Of course, they did that. God had told them that death would be the result of that. Romans chapter 5 says that because of one man's sin, death entered into the world, and death by sin, because death is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So this is the problem. So that's why we're all perishing, okay? But then, okay, the gospel comes in. How do we respond to that determines if we stay in the perishing category or go into the being saved category. And we're going to get more into that in a few minutes here. So it's really their response to the gospel. Those who are perishing is because they look at the gospel as foolishness, okay? Now, I know that he's talking about the gospel because in verse 17, if you look back in verse 17, he says, when, I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago when we covered this, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's what he says there. And not with eloquent words of wisdom, or words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Then he goes right into 18, for the word of the cross is folly. Okay, so he's, he's connecting what he talked about in verse 17 of that the word of the cross is the gospel. That's what he's been told to preach is the gospel message, what I just briefly summarized for you in just a second ago. And so the response to the gospel is that it's folly. You see that in verse 18. It's foolishness. What does that mean? Well, it really is the same word, actually, where we get, it's a root word where we get our word moron from or moronic. Okay, same word there uh, that is translated. Has the idea of it's a ridiculous thought. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Or it's nonsense. Um, A wildly mistaken or unfound opinion or idea. Uh, This is the reaction to the gospel that that people who are perishing have. It's even offensive in some ways as well. I think of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter uh, 5, I believe it is, or no, chapter 15, uh, where they responded to Jesus and they were offended at what he was saying here, the same idea here. And so it's this idea of, this idea of Jesus dying, a man dying on a cross, uh, uh, of all this, why does it have to be so bloody? Why is this all happening? It just makes no sense that we're putting all of our hope in one guy that lived so long ago. And, and, and you know, I mean, this, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. And it, it, it's folly. I mean, in some ways in our world today, 
um, you see this more and more. You see this more and more of people understanding of even organized religion in general. They'll, they'll, they'll talk about organized religion in general to say, well, it's a crutch for the weak, okay? It's foolishness. What they're saying is, I don't need it, but it's helpful for those who maybe they, they do need it. It, it kind of makes them feel better. It makes them a good citizen. So I guess that there's some, some, some goodness of there. But to them personally, it's foolishness. It, it, it's okay for someone else and say, you know, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to infringe upon your right to believe what you want to believe, and that's okay. But for me, it just, it just doesn't make sense. The Bible says here that that's the mentality, that's the reaction to the gospel for those who are perishing, okay? This is a sobering thought because it's very prevalent. And somebody, I was trying to think of some illustrations of what could I say here today that most of you would respond with, that's nonsense, Jeremy, okay? Now, I think, I hope you would respond not with, that's nonsense, Jeremy, if I said, hey, I've been doing some thinking, the world is flat, Okay? This world's flat. And I know that there's, there's flat earthers out there, and I don't know if there's any in here. And if so, maybe we can chat, but you're probably not going to change my mind. Okay? Um, so it would be kind of like this thought of like, or on a more sobering, because remember I said this word is also even offensive to people. If I said, you know, I think Hitler was just misunderstood. I think, I think he was just a misunderstood guy, and history has not been favorable to him. And, you know, he's, he's just not as bad as people think. That would be offensive, right? And so that, that reaction of, why do you say, how, how, how could you even say that? That's the response that many people have towards the gospel. Because what the gospel is saying is that you need this. The gospel is saying that without this, you're going to die for eternity. There's a place called hell. That's where you're going. And so people say, how dare you say that? I mean, you can believe what you want to believe, but don't put it on me here. You, you can believe that. If that's what you want to believe, that's fine. Go for it. But, but don't you dare tell me that I have to believe this. Don't you see that this is the, how people respond to the gospel, that it's foolishness or it's folly. And, and Paul here is saying that's the mentality of those who are perishing. Now, we have no pride here. He's going to talk about that. We don't look at people like that who believe that in any sort of condescending way. Actually, we pray and we give the gospel and we pray. And that's how we respond. What he does here when he makes both of his points, he, he's really, really uh, um, consistent in his presentation here. He then gives examples. So not only does he, he talk about that their response to the gospel is foolishness, he gives examples of this. And the first example is uh, the Jews. He says, so the Jews. So he's going to talk about two of the, the main groups of people that were there, Jews and Gentiles. He's going to talk about both of them here. He's talking about how that in elements of them, the, the, of, of people, them, they have this response to the gospel here of, of uh, this foolishness. Rather than accepting... And then faith, rather accepting the gospel and faith and believing in that, the main, uh, in the main, there were exceptions, but in the main, the Jewish people of this time, they rejected it even to this day. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They demanded signs. Now, that always intrigued me. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. As Jesus is going through his, his, his earthly ministry here, and what were some of the things he did? I mean, what were some of the miracles he did? I mean, you, you can answer. Huh? What were some of the miracles he did? What were some of the things he did? Water and the wine. Good. What's another one? Okay. Yep. Yep. Any others? Raising Lazarus. Raising Lazarus. Yeah, that was mentioned. Yeah. 
yeah, walking water. I mean, a lot of things that he did, okay? And so here, I come to this, and it's like the Jews demand a sign. And I thought to myself, well, what were they looking for? I mean, what, what else were they looking for here? I mean, there's one time, literally, in, uh, in, there's one text of scripture, let me see if I have it in my notes here. I think it's the Luke 11 text. I, I could be wrong in that. But there's a text of scripture where, where Jesus, he's literally casting out demons. He's casting out demons from people, and they demand a sign from him. So what are they looking for? I mean, these are not stupid people. What are they looking for? Here's what they were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah to overthrow Rome. They were looking for the sign that he was going to be triumphant and he was going to restore the glory to Israel and he was going to liberate them. That was the one sign that they were looking for. They were ignoring everything else where they were looking for that because Jesus was giving no indication that he was going to liberate them from Roman occupation. He wasn't giving them any clue of that. That's why they said, you need, if you're truly out of Messiah, you've got to show us here. So what about casting out demons? In that same text, they said, well, yeah, okay, how do you explain that away? Well, okay, he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, okay? So instead of accepting Jesus and the power of what God was doing in the, in, in, in the very midst there, they said, well, the way that he can do that is, you know, demons can do those things too, and, and it didn't make any sense. It's like, why would... By the power of the demons, cast out demons. That doesn't make any sense here. But it didn't make any sense because they're rejecting Messiah. You see, but this is what they were looking for. They were demanding the sign. They were demanding the sign that he was going to be the Messiah. That makes me think sometimes of other people. Like, what is the one thing that they have to have in order for it to be proven that Jesus is the Messiah? Some people say, well, you know what? Um, you know, this person has to do this, or I need to get this in order for me to understand that Jesus is God, or for me to accept this, God, you have to do this. It's the same thing. That's not how it works. We, he's given us what we need. But the Jews demanded a sign. And to them, you see on the screen, the cross was a stumbling block. And I can understand this from their perspective. It's easier for us to look back and say, how dare they do that? And, and, and I get that. But, but it, you can also understand where they were coming from. Because in, their, in Deuteronomy, it says that cursed are the ones who hang on a tree. Galatians, the two Galatians texts up there have the same idea that they're quoting Deuteronomy there. So you can understand the conundrum in their mind. I'm supposed to accept this guy as Messiah. He's on the cross hanging. My scriptures tell me that this is a cursed man, so how can he be my Messiah? You can understand the conundrum. But you can also understand how it unfolds. It says, yes, he became our curse for us. He took on our penalty. He became sin for us. What that means is that all of the penalty that was associated with sin got thrown right onto him, and that he bore that. For us. But so many times people say, ah, I don't know if that's enough. I, don't, I, I need to see proof. I need to see more proof than that. And the Bible is actually full of lots of historical proof. Lots of evidence there about the resurrection. I mean, so many times where in the writings... It talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about how that Jesus was seen after the resurrection by over 500 people at one time. He says, and many of those people are still alive today. So at the time of the writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were so many people that were still eyewitnesses walking around. And what Paul was saying there is he was saying, if you doubt this, go talk to them. They're alive. Go talk to them. It was there. Surely we would have so much more uh, 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 proof against this if, if this was made up. But it wasn't. 
The Jews demanded a sign. The cross was a stumbling block. To them, saviors don't get crucified on a cross. So maybe there's someone here today where there's something stumbling, there's a stumbling block in your life of why you're not crossing the line and believing in Jesus Christ. I just encourage you to really think that through. Man, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. The Jews acquired a sign. But it wasn't just the Jews. It was also the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they needed wisdom. Okay, now remember I explained this in, in the, I think it was the first message, um, of that the, the group of people, this culture, this, this, this uh, Corinthian culture, uh, highly prized rhetoric skill, um, persuasion, oratory skill, uh, wisdom, thoughts, things like this. This was uh, philosophy. Uh, this was hugely important to them. And so this is why he's mentioning this here. So the Greeks, the Gentiles, need wisdom. Everything needed to make sense. They need to be persuaded intellectually. So to them, the message of the cross was nothing but foolishness. I mean, how could you follow a person who wasn't smart enough to keep himself from getting killed? That doesn't make sense. He wasn't smart enough to do that. Why would you follow him if they triumphed over him? That doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense why you would follow someone like that. This is the Gentile, the Greek way of thinking. The wisdom here had much to do with like social status and influence as well. Jesus wasn't accepted by the social elite, and so it would be folly to follow him. He was rejected. He was a lower class. And so for the Greeks at that time, that mentality was like, no, this is wisdom. This is of the elite status. And it's like, so why are you following someone that's not even in that status? It makes no sense. This is what Paul was dealing with. And we get this today. If I said the word Richard Dawkins, many of you would recognize who I'm talking about, renowned atheist, author of The God Delusion. He was uh, formerly the professor at Oxford. Uh, he once had a debate with a guy named John Lennox, who was also a professor at Oxford University. What they debated about was the existence of God. And at one point, this is what Doc, Dawkins says of John Lennox. He says this. He believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the physical constants, that this genius of mathematics and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. It doesn't make sense to Richard Dawkins. That's folly. What? So you're going to tell me the guy who came up, or the being, if you will, who came up with mathematics, and the reason why he chose his mathematics is because uh, Lennox was a professor of mathematics. He says, so you're going to tell me what you've given your life to study, that is that orderly and just, just the, the rock-solid truth of mathematics. You're going to tell me that the being who came up with those things couldn't come up with a better plan than that he would have to go get himself tortured and killed on this little cosmic speck of dust in the world, you're going to, in, the, in the universe. You're going to tell me that that was what he came up with? Read between the lines. He's saying that's foolishness. And so we deal with this. It's foolishness. It's foolishness because it doesn't make sense But when you, to them. But when you look at what the Bible teaches on this, you understand, wait a minute here. This is the only way. This makes perfect sense. So here's what Paul's point is. Paul's point is this. is that the word of the cross can only be accepted by faith. The word of the cross can only be accepted by faith. Following Jesus, I'm going to be honest with you, following Jesus is going to cause, cause you to scratch your heads at times. Okay? 
is going to cause you to scratch your head at times. It's not always going to make perfect sense, but we will wonder why God didn't make his plan different than what he did sometimes. We're going to say, well, why didn't God do it this way? I have those questions at times. But the question is, is God more wise than I am? The answer is yes. Someone's, I've said this before because, and I, and I, and I, and I, I say this with, with a little bit of a, a caveat because I know this could be abused here. But the, the, uh, the, the underlying truth is still the same, is true here is that a God who can be comprehensively understood isn't truly worthy to be worshipped. That can be an easy cop-out and just say, well, then you know, we're not going to have to really engage intellectually or things like that. And if we're using it in that way, then that's out of bounds. Because I will say this, that even though we don't understand all the things about God, he has given us what we need to know, and it doesn't mean that believing in God is anti-intellectual. Um, it just means we're not going to be able to understand everything. But a God who we could understand every nuance of him and every nuance of his thinking and every nuance of his plans and purposes, a God that we could just fit all of that into our box of thinking, is he truly worthy to be worshipped? I don't think so. Because he's got to be transcendent. He's got to be higher than I am. So in the end, is God big enough to wholeheartedly believe in him? You know, Second Peter talks about how God, he's promised to give us everything for life and godliness. He's promised that everything we need is for life and godliness that he's given to us. But what he has not promised, he's not promised ever in the scriptures to fully answer every one of our questions or satisfy all of our curiosity. He's never promised that. There are things in the Bible that is just alluded to and that we know about, but we have a lot of questions about. Example, angels. There's a lot of questions I have about angels. There's not a lot mentioned about angels. Angels are mentioned in the Bible in times, but there's not a whole lot of details about them. There's a lot of questions about that. But that's not what we need to know for life and godliness. But what we do need to know for life and godliness, he has given to us. A couple of verses, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what he's saying there, when he was giving the law back then, he was giving the law, he says, listen, some of the things about God belong to God and you're never going to know about on this side of eternity. But the things that are revealed, they're yours and is what you need to be obedient to God. I've given you enough to know for, to live life in godliness. That's what Peter talks about later on. And then in Isaiah 55, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, there's just times where we just have to understand, we just have to, in humility, and that's what is the basis of faith, we just have to humility and just say, I don't know, but all I know is you've revealed this, and I'm going to believe this. I'm going to believe that I'm a sinner. I'm going to believe that my sin has separated me from you. I'm going to believe that the penalty of sin is death or perishing, to use Paul's words here. I'm going to believe that because you revealed it. But I'm also going to believe that Jesus Christ came and he lived a sinless life and he died to death he didn't have to die. And then he rose again the third day. And if we believe in him, if I ask you, if I call out to you, I can be saved. I'm going to believe that. That's what's been revealed to us. But to those who reject that... Or put it off. Paul puts them in the category of those who are perishing. Okay? Now, thankfully, that's not the only category. There's another category. Those who are being saved. So just because we see a bunch of puzzle pieces which make no sense doesn't mean that there isn't a big picture waiting to take your breath away. And then when we understand that, 
we understand this idea of salvation here. He says, but to those, of, but to us uh, who are being saved, it is the power of God. What? The gospel, it is the power of God. So again, it's the response to the gospel. It is the power of God. So how do we respond to this message? It is God's power on display, his power over sin, power over judgment, power to, to give me forgiveness. It is the power of God. That's what he says here. Because only the cross, only the gospel can transform people. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for transformation. So, but Paul is very clear in this of what he says salvation is not and what salvation is in this. He's very good at his writing here and, and, and explaining this rational argument here. He says, first of all, he says, as he's going through this text here, he says, here's what salvation is not, Okay. Salvation, where I'm getting this, is um, uh, verses mainly 26 and following. He says, it is not, salvation is not um, earned through wisdom. He says, not many of you, on verse 26, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were noble birth, okay? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he goes on with that. So the first thing we need to know about what salvation is, is it's not something that is earned through wisdom. It's not meaning something we have to get to intellectual plateaus where then we get to this philosophy or then we get to this, this, this status of what the Greeks were looking for, the status of higher, well, then now God, we're acceptable enough to God where he saves us. That's not what salvation is. It's not through wisdom and this idea of we have to figure all the nuances of the universe out and all these things. That's not what it is. It's not obtained through power, he says in this, uh, uh, this section here. It's not something that's conquered. It's not a spoil of war. It's not something that the power of the strong can take by force. That's not what salvation is. Salvation isn't something that you can seize upon. The Bible's very clear. Salvation is not that. And then lastly, he talks about the last category here. He says it's not through inheritance. He says it's not of noble birth. Now, of course, this is not saying that no wise person can be saved or no powerful person can be saved or people of nobility can't be saved. I, I read when I was preparing for this, I, 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 forgive me, I can't remember who said this, but there was a, a lady uh, that was in the royal family years ago, and she said that the letter M, uh, she, she really, really uh, hung on the letter M. And the reason why was because it says here, it says not many of noble birth. It doesn't say not any of noble birth. Uh, she said, I hang on the M, you know. Um, and the reason why is because people in these categories, they tend to broad brush here, they tend to be very self-reliant, okay, and feeling they don't need anyone's assistance. And so that's going to be antithetical to embracing a gospel message. That's why it's not many. Not that they, you know, there are some, but it's not a message that typically appeals to the powerful because they have to admit that they're weak in order to obtain salvation. It's not about nobility. They have to admit that that doesn't really carry much weight. They have to depend on Christ. And the wise, it's not about their intellectual prowess. It's about embracing the gospel of the cross. So that's what salvation is not according to this. But rather, and of course... Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, my friends, 
Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the Jews demanded? What did the Jews demand? What did they demand? Sign. What did the Greeks demand? I want to show you something in this text here. It's interesting how Paul brings us. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, what they were demanding, Paul is saying Jesus was. Those powerful signs, that's Jesus. Hey, you, you know, the, the wisdom, that's Jesus. What you need is Jesus. And so while the Jews wanted the sign, Jesus is the power of God. And while the Greeks, they wanted wisdom, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so what, what Paul is getting, it's a masterful way of what he's, he's, he's writing here. He's writing to the Corinthians. Remember all the problems. He's writing to people who are Christians. He's saying, here's the reason why, what's driving me here is to preach the gospel. Verse 17, that's what drives me is to preach the gospel. Why? Because people need to be converted by it. I think what he's getting at here is he's trying to steer the Corinthian church away from some of the things that they have been being influenced by their culture about. And he says, we, we, need, to, we need to remember what salvation is here. We need to remember it's only about Christ. It's not about wisdom. It's not about demanding signs. It's about, it's about Christ here. And that's going to inform the rest of the book here as he goes through of how we handle some of the difficulties in this messy church here of it is Christ. Now, remember, I told you that Paul gives examples. He gives examples of Jews and Gentiles about those who are per- perishing. But he also gives examples here in this text as well. First of all, in verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. So his first example then is the Corinthians themselves. He says, I want you to consider your own state. And that would be good for all of us. We should all consider our own state before God today. Where are we at with God? What are we trusting in? You know, that's what we need to consider. These are the, the things that are so important to us. So the Corinthians, he says, consider your calling Look who God chose. It usually wasn't the wise or the powerful, the noble. That's where we got that before in the previous section. He says, you know, what God chose to work with, he says, it it wasn't typically those people. Consider your calling. So the example he gives is like, you see what God has done. You see how God has unveiled his salvation plan. You see how he's doing. You see the people who are believing in him. You see that. Consider your calling. Consider it. So, it'd be helpful for all of us, where do you stand before God today? What are you trusting in? What's your basis of hope of salvation? If it's anything but Jesus Christ and Him alone, my friend, you're in the category of those who are perishing. And it gives me no joy to say that. But what does give me joy to say that is in this very moment, you can move from the category of perishing to the perishing to the category of those who are being saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but consider your calling. Consider you. Consider your interactions with God. Consider his work in your life that he's done in your life up to this point. But then he, he, he talks more about not just the, the Corinthians here, but then when he, he, he broadens it. In verse 30, he says, He is the source of your life in Christ whom God made our wisdom and our um, Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, verse 30. So he's, he's broadened it now. So where we can take that same principle to us, we can take this as examples. We can broaden it to us where Jesus uh, is our wisdom. Okay, so the wisdom that we need to navigate this world is found in Christ. Okay, you say, well, how is that? How does Christ, how is he wise 
in me in helping like figure out how to, you know, navigate life choices? How does that matter? Because when our focus is on Christ and what he's done for us, and our focus is on following him and pleasing him and being obedient to him, then we're going to make wise decisions, right? It, it, it's it's in, in, the, in the wisdom that is required of God is given to us in Christ. Jesus is our wisdom. Not only that, he's our righteousness, you and I, the Bible talks about in the Old Testament that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Um, it's because of the sin nature that we have, right? And, and so there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. The Bible is very clear on that. Ephesians talks about this, is that no matter what we do, even the good things that we do are tainted with sin. And so it's not righteous to a holy God. But what it, it doesn't mean that it's not pleased with it. It just means it's not righteous, Okay. So righteousness that we need is Christ. I mentioned this, I think, twice already in the sermon, maybe three times, that Jesus lived a sinless life. That is crucial to the gospel message. If Jesus would have sinned just one time, his death on the cross would have been of no benefit to us. Zero. He needed to live the life that we could not live. Romans 5 teaches us that he lived a perfect, sinless life so that when he accepted the punishment of sin, which he did not have to have, I've, to, I've mentioned this before, Jesus is the only person born of a woman on this earth that has never had to die, never needed to die, and wouldn't have died unless he gave his life up. And he did, because he was voluntarily taking on the punishment of sin, that was death. And he took it to himself, and it was his righteousness then, when we believe in him, we ask him to forgive us our sins, then what we have here is we have his righteousness being accredited to us. This has huge ramifications for us because no longer when I'm trying to obey God, I'm trying to obey God not out of trying to earn his favor, but out of love and obedience to him. Okay? I'm not trying to get him to like me. I'm not trying to get him to accept me. I'm, I'm trying to get him, uh, I'm trying to have a relationship with him. That's the reason why I'm obedient. That's the reason why I'm doing works of righteousness. It's not because I'm trying to earn anything from him. It's out of love of what he's given me that I'm living this way. That's why it says Jesus is our righteousness. It doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want. Paul anticipates that argument in Romans chapter 6. He says, well, if grace is going to continue, should we just continue in sin so the grace abounds? No, by no means. He says that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live righteously because we're trying to live out of love for him and obedience to him, and God uses that for his purposes. So he's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification, it says there. He's the one that is our spiritual growth. He's the one that fuels that. If we keep our eyes on Christ, we will, we will grow in our walk. If we keep our eyes on Christ, we will get more mature as Christians. He is our sanctification and, of course, our redemption. He's our redemption. You see, this, this gospel message, what Paul writes, he says, listen, there's only two types of people in this world. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved here. In other words, we have no hope for wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, or redemption apart from Jesus Christ. This is the wise plan of God, according to Paul's writings here. So the path is clear. Salvation is only through Jesus. He says no one has anything to boast of, right? He says that in verse 29. It's only in Christ that we do. Salvation isn't something that we just figure out on our own with our own wisdom. It's not something that we conquer through power. It's not something that we inherit through noble birth. But how do we get it? I've mentioned it several times. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who what? Believe. You must believe, my friend. You must believe. I must believe in Christ. I must put my hope in him and him alone. Romans chapter 10 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here today and you're not sure which category you're in, or you know that you're in the category of those who are perishing, let me encourage you, repent of your sins. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Ask Christ to save you and follow him. And the Bible says you're in the category of being saved. And it's a wonderful category to be in. Doesn't mean we're sinless, doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean that we're saved by grace. The path beyond salvation is clear. Um, it says in, in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom. We've already talked about that verse. This idea, this present tense here, that this is where you are right now, and it's only because of Christ. And so remember last week, we said the gospel is for this life as much as it is for the next life. So here's what Paul is doing as I bring this to a close. He's sharing what drives him, the power of the gospel. That's what, continue, that's what uh, motivated him to keep preaching, to keep going, because he saw the gospel changing lives. And my friend, to let the gospel change your life. The things that we're fearful about, you know, is the more we follow Christ, the more we keep our eyes, and we think on things that are true about God, about the situation, about the future that we have in Christ, the more those fears just melt away. I'm not going to promise that they're always going to be gone, but you're not going to be controlled by them. The more that you follow Christ and the more that you put your faith solely in Christ Jesus alone, the more you will see that how he grows you and how he changes you over time. Only the gospel can transform lives. So the question is, do you believe, and is the gospel shaping your life today? Those are the questions that we should ask based on this text.